0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the London School of Economics for this online event. Uh, my name is Jan van den Heuvel. I'm a professor in the Department of Mathematics here at the LSE, and I'm also currently the head of the department. This is our first public lecture this year, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Professor David Sumter to the LSE today. So David is a professor of applied mathematics at the University of Uppsala in Sweden. He originated in London, grew up in Scotland, completed his doctorate in mathematics in Manchester. And he, after that, he had a fellowship in Oxford and then headed to Sweden. Uh, David has a broad interest. His research specialism is collective animal behavior on which he has written a book, but he also has written several more general mathematical books, one called Matics, one called Outnumbered, and I'm sure he has more books in the pipeline. He has consulted in sports betting and he also worked with a number of the biggest football clubs and national teams, including the English ones Barcelona and Habibu. So today David will talk and give us some insight and some information, what is happening in his most recent book, which is called the 10 equations that rule the world and how you can use them too. Uh, Before David starts a little bit of organizational event, we always appreciate if people uh, tweet, do some live tweeting about it, please use the hashtag, hashtag LSE Sumter. This event is recorded And as soon as possible, if everything works, we will make it available as a podcast uh, from several websites. After David's presentation, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to him. To submit questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. We will be able to see the questions. And once after David's presentation, I will try to post as many as possible to him. Uh, in your question, please include your name, your affiliation, and in particular, we'd like to hear from students, alumni, and potential incoming students. I, I think that's more enough than enough for me. I'm really delighted to welcome David Simter, and I hand uh, the attention over to him.
1: Thank you very much for that um, lovely introduction, Jan. Uh, as- As Jan said, I've I've worked in lots of different areas as an applied mathematician, and I'm fascinated by how we can use mathematics to understand everything in the world, from football, which I work with a bit now, to animal behaviour, to our own social behaviour. But this book, um, The Ten Equations That Rule the World, was was really a kind of realisation about the powers that mathematicians have. And I'm going to talk quite a lot about those, those, those sort of secret powers in a way and the book is an I- the idea is to reveal those secret powers to you because it's not only about how, how they're used but there is also about how um, you can use them too but I'm going to start with the following picture um, this one here now this is the symbol for Illuminati, with which is well known to younger people now because it's a popular meme when you say Eliminati confirmed. What it means by saying Eliminati confirmed is that there is a sort of secret society that controls the world ground, that they have this kind of power over governments, they have power over financial institutions, they have power over education. And I, I want to say straight off that there is no such conspiracy theory. Eliminati is doesn't exist. But it's an interesting idea to start thinking about where I'm going to go in this talk. Because even if Illuminati doesn't exist, there is another question. Is there a secret society of mathematicians that possibly control the world? Could it be that, well, that myself and maybe Jan as well, he looks a bit suspicious. Maybe we are actually ruling the world, too. So, um, and there, there is actually some clue that that could be the case, because one of my favourite books when I was, this was when I was a PhD student, this was written, was The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code, um, it outlines this idea that there is a society, and the society organises itself around the number phi, which is 1.618, and uh, the number phi appears in lots of different areas in mathematics. It, it appears in the golden rectangle. It appears in the Fibonacci sequence. If you take two numbers in a Fibonacci sequence and divide the um, last one by the next one, the ratio is the golden, the golden ratio. And so it appears in different places. And the idea presented in the book, and this is a work of fiction, of course, is that this secret society use it to communicate with each other and also as a sort of building block for understanding and controlling the world. And I wanted to take this idea and investigate it a little bit more more deeply. I'm gonna give a number of examples, but I'm gonna start my first example why. So obviously, um, you hopefully all recognize him, even if you don't know anything about secret societies. This is the video Gangnam Style, which was extremely popular in 2012. Okay, so what's Gangnam Style got to do with anything to do with this? Well, it it was a massive hit on YouTube, but at that time, and for a few years afterwards, YouTube had a really big problem. People would go in, I'm sure that you watched a Gangnam Style video, and you spent three minutes there, and then you would go back to doing something else. And that's not going to make a successful website. They're not going to get a lot of advertising revenue from that type of behavior. And they're not going to become a popular website. So YouTube wanted a way to get people to stick around and keep watching videos more than just for the three minutes it took to watch. Charlie bit my finger or um, what did the fox say or these types of things. And how do they do that? Well, they contacted um, well, this, this, yeah, this was a the problem. They wanted they wanted some way of keeping people watching all of the time. And what YouTube did is they contacted two, actually three Google engineers. And the Google engineers used a thing called a neural network in order to come up with recommendations. So to come up with this idea of what would be shown next. So this is just three guys who in Mountain View, California, sitting there. And one day they get a call from YouTube saying, look, we need, we need some way of keeping people watching our videos because they just go away. And their idea was quite simple. It was what they do is they focus only on maximizing watch time. The only thing they do is find an algorithm which just kept people watching more and more and more. And how does that algorithm work? Well, it works in the following way. This is something that anyone with small kids might be familiar with. The idea is, is as follows. There's two inputs into this algorithm and one output. This is the neural network that connects these two things together. I've, I've called it, and in fact, the Google engineers themselves um, called it the funnel. And the idea is that you take on the left-hand side, you take in characteristics of the people who watch videos, and you take in the characteristics of different videos. This is Peppa Pig. this is obviously a young girl watching a video and you feed it in to this network and it funnels things down. You see that the funnel is getting narrower and narrower and it comes up with a new suggestion for what you're going to watch. And this is a video where it's um, it's called wrong, wrong face. And you see some kids, uh, you see some characters changing their faces. And this is one of the very typical videos that it comes up with. Actually, what? One of the points here is that the pepper Pig is probably a, high, is a more high quality made video than these videos that it comes up with at the suggestions at the end. But that's the basic idea of the funnel. And they implied it not only to on small children videos, but they implied it also to uh, videos watched by adults. And we saw things like this. We saw the rise in popularity of, for example, Jordan Peterson. And what would happen is they would feed in Jordan Peterson and some heuristics in it and it would come up with it. Well, anyone who watches a Jordan Peterson video um, would also watch a Ben Shapiro video and Jordan Peterson and and Ben Shapiro are both somewhat on the right wing of um, opinions and Ben Shapiro more so, I think, than Jordan Peterson. And what these funnels would do is that they would funnel people into certain directions and opinions and videos we can come back to the, the, the good and the bad about that later but that, that's how the funnel worked now what's remarkable here i think as a mathematician is that the funnel idea is extremely simple the idea is that you maximize a very uh, you maximize a function now maybe not all of you recall, uh, recall derivatives from um, high school mathematics but what's happening here is that the engineers are trying to predict the watch time of individuals. And so what do is that they'll look at how many um, Peterson, Jordan Peterson videos somebody has watched in the past. They'll try and predict how long somebody will watch a Ben Shapiro video, for example, and then they'll find out the actual thing and they continually minimize this distance. And this is, my, this is, is actually equation nine in the book, but it's the first equation I'm presenting to you today. And this equation will hone in on better and better predictions of how long people um, watch videos. And in fact, it climbs up a gradient here and it gets to the top and predicts how long people will watch. And that's going on inside every one of these little, little neurons inside the neural network is trying to do this maximized prediction of watch time. And it's incredibly successful. This simple idea of maximizing watch time using this neural network completely revolutionized YouTube. I was reading some YouTube statistics. I didn't know which statistic to present to you today because it's now, I think it's over 50% of use of the internet is for YouTube. I think it's 60% on mobile videos. And one of the most important things and relevant to what I've just said is that 70% of the time you watch YouTube is from the recommendations that's created by the funnel. And this is where you can start to see this idea of a small number of people controlling the world. You have three Google engineers who come up with the simple idea of maximizing watch time and then you have us all glued for hours and hours and hours to YouTube. I mean, I know this firsthand because I've got teenage kids is completely revolutionized how people watch TV and there's, people are stuck watching the, watching the things recommended by an algorithm. And it's this idea of a few equations controlling your life and my life or ruling our lives that really got me thinking This is one of them, but how many more are there? And I've actually come up with 10. Um, This is nine of them. I might say a bit at the end about what the 10th is. This one I call the learning equation because simply by maximizing our, um, simply by looking at how long we spend watching videos, it can learn what we like and it can give us new things that we like. And I'm also going to talk about, I'm going to talk about three of them today. Um, There's the advertising equation. I'll I'll come back to what the others are. I'm going to talk about the learning equation, the betting equation, and a little bit about the influencer equation. So let's go on to the betting equation. The betting equation was it's the first one in the book. And it was probably the for me, the one that made me realize most about how a small number of mathematicians can control so much of our lives. But before I go into that, I'll just start start looking at it from a personal point of view. So if you think about how you make decisions, so imagine you're sitting there thinking about a business idea or an idea about how things could get better in your life. We have a tendency, all of us, I think, to imagine one possible way forward. We hope that we'll sit around thinking, maybe thinking about a math problem, think about out where we should live or what we should do with our lives. And we hope that suddenly it will come, ding we've had this good, great idea and we know what to do. But actually, that's often the wrong way of thinking. The best way of thinking is to think probabilistically because most of the times when we have a good idea, something else will get in the way and we'll fail. So I like to think about how people should think about ideas probabilistically like this. You have an idea, it doesn't work. 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 It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And time after time, you keep having ideas, try them out, and they don't work out. Until finally, one time, finally, I'm going to get there. You finally have the idea which is going to actually make you money and make you rich. And that's actually how business people think a lot about this of uh, um, types of strategies so you have to think probabilistically you can't imagine that the one startup idea that you have is going to be the successful one instead you try lots and lots of different things and eventually you hope that you're going to be successful with one and this can actually be applied to lots of different things you can use it to think about your relationships Um, you fall in love doesn't work doesn't work again, doesn't work again, doesn't work again. I'm happily married, so I feel like I shouldn't really be handing out um, relationship advice. This was a long time for me ago for me. But time after time and time again, things might not work out until eventually they do. And it's that probabilistic thinking about there's only a small chance of a certain thing working out and accepting those chances which allow you to think better and plan better for your future. Is also This is also used by Netflix. I like to relate these things back to how social media companies use these things. They What they do is that they try out on everybody who's, who's on Netflix, they try out different pictures of the same series to see if you'll click on that picture. So they're constantly experimenting with you with lots and lots of small variations of a theme until you fasten for one and you click on that and you start start watching the series. So this is called A-B testing and it's very much related to this idea of a small part of success and trying lots of things until it works. OK, but I've called this the betting equation and that's actually where it's most seriously used. Um, these two guys, this is Jan and Marius. And they came and, saw, came and met me in Uppsala just before the uh, FIFA World Cup in Russia in 2018. And they were interested in how they could make money gambling. And one of the first things to real gambling related to what I said about a broken heart or making money is it's never about finding one bet that is optimal. It's not even about finding 10 bets that are optimal or even 100 bets that are optimal. What you've got to do is you've got to accept that you're going to make thousands, tens of thousands, or even hundreds of thousands of bets per year in order to make money. You're not trying to identify one or a small number of, of winning matches. You're trying to a way of beating over lots and lots of matches um, the odds. And that's what we worked on. We worked on a, a model together. I'm not going to go into the details here, but I want to give you an idea of, of how it worked. What we did is we, we plotted the bookmakers odds. Um, so, so first of all, sorry, we, we, we plotted the dots here are the bookmakers odds for certain matches in the world cup. The solid line here is what these odds would look like if they were fair, if there was um, no way of beating them. And that, and that's expressed by this equation. So p equals one over one plus x is this equation here. And what we did is we saw to what degree do the bookmakers' odds, which are the dots here, differ from the perfect odds that we would expect. And we found that the bookmakers' odds slightly underestimate favourites with shorter odds. And so this we call a long shot bias if. Um, This would mean if there was a team that was a very, very strong um, favourite. So if Brazil is playing, um, I don't know, uh, Ecuador or Brazil is, uh, yeah, then we'd have a very strong favourite for Brazil. And this actually says it's worth backing Brazil in this case. So there's that small bias that we found. We found one other small bias is that the odds overestimate favourites with longer odds. One example I like is that In the 2016 World Cup, when England were playing Uruguay, England were the favourites, but only by a small margin. And this was a typical example of a match where you should actually back the underdog, who was Uruguay in this case. And so they overestimate favourites with longer odds. And what I want to emphasise here is the tiny, tiny margin of these... um, these that we'd found over the bookmakers, but that was enough for us to build a strategy. Jan downloaded all the odds and he built a bot which um, automatically placed the bets during the World Cup. I actually didn't know who was what matches we were we were betting on or which matches we were backing. It was all done automatically, and we found well we oh yeah sorry I forgot to uh, I forgot to say an important thing here. This is the equation of how we corrected for the odds. So we built, we built the bot and we put in this model here for how the bot should bet. And it actually made a small adjustment. If you see in the first figure, the line doesn't go through the dots. But in the second figure, the line more accurately goes through the dots. So the bot that we created would use this equation um, while the bookmakers were stuck on this line. And then we could actually just have this small edge over the bookmakers odds that were And the model did give us a small edge. It actually, in our World Cup model, we made about £200 from £1,400 worth of bets. Now, there's definitely some luck involved with this because I want to get to the point here that if you're just betting on every match in the World Cup, that's still not enough to know that you've got a good model. You need to make thousands, 10,000s or even hundreds of thousands of bets. And that's exactly what Jan and Marius went on to do. Um, They spent the year after they met me in Uppsala um, tuning their model and finding these types of biases this is I I like to show some pictures of the lifestyle you can have if you're a professional better and maybe you don't get to do as much traveling just now but this is them traveling all around the world to Ukraine to Florida playing beach volleyball on the beach in Denmark this is my favorite this is um, this is Marius surfing uh, which he likes to do in his spare time when he's not gambling. And these two, they had a model that made 838,000 euros from over 100,000 bets of around one euro each each time. So that's less than 1% profit per bet, but there's very little luck involved in this. There is actually a lot of hard work on that. I mean, I don't, I don't want to portray it as just this this lifestyle, but there's a lot of hard work behind it. But they could actually find the edge on the market uh, in fact, their model came out, it came and their model was very much based on Germans were very pessimistic when they bet. They always um, thought it was going to be a draw. Brazilians were over enthusiastic when they bet. So you could actually bet on the different markets and find those small edges over what people tended to um, to back. Now, here is the here is a key idea here is that their model involved no footballing knowledge. It just involved an understanding of probabilities. Because if you're, trying to, if you're trying to understand the game and who's likely to win on Saturday, then you can't make many bets. But if you use an approach where you use only statistics in order to find your edge, then you can actually place the hundreds of thousand bets it requires to, to make money. And so it only requires an understanding of probabilities and not actually an understanding of football knowledge. And that tends to be true of a lot of the equations that I've found. It's true of financial markets, for example. One of my colleagues, he's worked 20 years in financial markets, and he has no idea what a good investment is. Instead, what he's doing is finding arbitrages. He's finding ways of sort of that there's imbalances in the market and finding them quick enough and using models to project them just slightly forward in time in order to make an edge of them maybe I don't need to tell everyone about this at LSE. I'm sure you're teaching all your students how to do. It. But here here is. Another, I want to get to what I, what I think is the most amazing thing about all of this. So th- this is the this is the Happy Valley racetrack in um, Hong Kong. And this is a scene of one of the most successful mathematical gamblers of all time. So a guy called William Bentner moved there in the 1990s and started using an odd space model, very similar to the one I talked about, in order to make money at the racetracks. Um, If you want to read more about him, I first found out about him in Bloomberg Magazine, um, where there was an article about how he won close to a billion dollars. Him and his him and other people he worked with won close to a billion dollars. Now. The thing I find remarkable is, although this was like revealed in Bloomberg Magazine, it wasn't a secret. So in 1990, oh, this is in 2005, he made a video explaining all of the equations behind what he was doing. And even before that, I think in 1999, he published an article. In fact, it might've been 96, now I have to remember. But anyway, you can look up this article and um, he published an article outlining precisely how his system worked and if you look in that there's an equation very similar to the one in fact exactly it's written in a slightly different form but exactly the same as the one i presented showing how you apply these models in order to make money and he also showed how it made a profit over over three or four years this article had only been cited about 105 times so No one was reading it or using it, but it was all there. All the details of how you make money gambling was openly published, but people just weren't reading it. And it's the same also, if I go back to the neural networks for the YouTube recommendations, their YouTube recommendation algorithm is just published openly on Google Scholar. You can go in and download it. It's been read more times than the betting article but you can actually read all of the ways that they implemented the algorithm to get people watching YouTube. And so everything in mathematics and the mathematics is used is openly. available. Yet people aren't actually using it. And this comes back. This is I want to link back to the Illuminati conspiracy theory, because. We do hear a lot about conspiracy theories in the modern world. The one that's, you know, there's the election tomorrow and the the massive one that everyone's talking about is the QAnon conspiracy theory. We hear about flat earthers. Um, We hear that um, 5G is killing us, that people didn't go to the moon. We hear about these conspiracy theories. Now, for me, I think the most convincing reason we know that these conspiracy theories are not true is that they would require so many people to keep a secret. If you were going to have a 5G um, killer network of towers, you would need all of these people to plan it and to put them in place and just to keep this secret. And it's just not practical. It's the same thing with the moon landing, like how many people would be involved. You would find out about these conspiracy theories. So that's why conspiracy theories are not true in general, but also they're not true. That's the reason they're not true in general, but that's, that's one of the reasons we know that they're not true. But that isn't true about the 10 equations, because this is what we're shown. The equations are somewhat a, a, a secret hidden in plain sight. We have access to these equations. We This is the betting equation that um, that I used with Jan and Marius. This is the learning equation, um, which I discussed earlier. These are the other equations. This is the um, Uh, This is a correlation equation, which is used in advertising. This is um, Bayes' equation, Bayes' rule, which I call the judgment equation, which is all about uh, processing information. We have the confidence interval there. Um, I'm going to come back to this one. This is the influencer equation. This is the the Markov assumption. This is the one that you use in financial markets a lot. You have a a signal, a a noise, and you have feedback. This is a learning equation, which is used a lot, also used a lot in social media. Each of them are hidden in plain sight. You can read articles about these equations, but you've got to learn how the code works in order to understand them and apply them. And so I wanted to reveal them all. And that's the that's the idea in the book. I don't go into all of the mathematical details of them, but I explain how they how they're used or how they're built up and how they're used. So I'll, go, I'll do one more before I uh, ask you for questions. And the, the last one I'll do is the influencer equation. Now, to think about the influencer equation, I want you to think about doing a random walk on all of your friends. And what I mean by a random walk is this. What you do is you go into Instagram. If you're in Instagram, I, I'm not really in Instagram very much. I've got teenage kids now. And this is the, when they're, they're very small. As the last time. I don't know why I have this photo. I think, I think they picked up from Facebook. Anyway, this is me. And what I did is I take a random person that I follow on Instagram and then I go into their account. This is Marcus. This is one of my friends, also with a kid photo. And then I take a random person that he follows. This is Lisa Samucci, who's a she does um, street football. She does these tricks on, on football and Marcus follows her. She follows another footballer in the USA, um, and he follows. Doesn't take long for this to happen. He follows Kim Kardashian. Kim Kardashian follows Beyonce. Beyonce um, follows AOC, the American politician. She follows ProPublica, a website who follows New York Times, who fo- follows Jane Fonda. And actually, I'm not sure who this is. I've forgotten now. It's one of Jane Fonda people that Jane Fonda follows. There's Lenny Kravitz who follows the Jackson 5, who follows another pop star, who follows, uh, now we get into a world of footballers. Then we end up with Cristiano Ronaldo. Will Smith, he follows. The Rock Hudson is also very big on, on Instagram. Um, we follow Joe Biden. And then finally, um, ah, I've forgotten her name. The one that sings Ocean Eyes, the um, uh, Billie Eilish. And we actually get stuck at Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish, she follows no one. So she's not following anyone at all. So we get stuck there. But what you actually see and what's what's key here is that when you do this random walk of jumping around on different people, you'll never, ever get back to David Sumter. And not just because you take a stop at Billie Eilish, but because you will end up hopping around all of these different celebrities and you'll just end up in this celebrity world. Okay, so why am I telling you about this experiment? There's is something you can do. It's quite it's quite fun. I had loads of fun making this one. Well, the reason is that this random hopping around is precisely how Google's algorithm works. What they do, oh yeah, I've said this, I'll never be myself again, but it's precisely how Google's algorithm works. And so Google will never see me again and searching online, unless you search for David Sumter, of course, will never reveal me again. And what hap- ends up happening and this is where the influencer equation comes in, what Google do is that they work out, you have a matrix of connections between me, and they find out what the stable matrix of connections are by doing this particular sum. And that ends up emphasizing people like Kim Kardashian and the Rock Hudson, who you go through lots of times on a random walk because that's exactly what they're working out. And it de-influences any individuals and you end up with a sort of society. And now it's easy to kind of criticise or to sort of make fun of Kim Kardashian and The Rock Hudson and Will Smith and so on. But this doesn't just happen with Instagram. It happens in all parts of the world that we live in today. You see it with news items. If I think about something like Brexit or Donald Trump, um, I don't know if I want to go as far as with COVID as well. What, what happens with these news stories is that they just explode up and they become disproportionately large. So, OK, they're important things that affect our lives, but it becomes a concentration on one or a few of these things. And this is down to the influencer equation where we keep doing these random walks and end up back on these very important or the, these seemingly very important celebrities or news stories. And coming back to my theme, I really wanted to nail home this theme this evening about this, this um, that it's written right in front of us. Again, the influencer equation, which Google uses all the time, is right there in front of us. This is an article by Oscar Perrin, written at the turn of the century. And the key to the, um, the, the, key to the influencer equation is this, this idea And it comes from something called the peron theorem. And it's already written there 100 years ago. If you follow it into German and in the mathematics, you can actually see this equation already emerging there. And in fact, it goes back further than this. And this is Gauss's notebook where he's working out Gaussian elimination um, 200 years before this one or oh, maybe hundred, I, I haven't quite got my history right there, but it goes all the way back to Gauss. And he even goes back 2000 years to Chinese mathematics, where they're solving these types of problems using what later became called Gauss. And this blew my mind when I found out about it, that Larry Page at uh, Stanford, uh, he was a PhD student at Stanford and then founded Google. He has a patent on this equation For using it in internet search. So an equation which is maybe 2,000 years old or at least 300 years old is now patented for using on internet search. Um, And again, it's completely open and we're able to find it, but it was Larry Page who thought, well, wait a minute, this mathematics can be used to control the internet. And the rest is history google's share value i think um, it, it wasn't it wasn't actually larry page who personally had the patent it was stanford university and they got 300 i think they sold the shares they got in google for 300 million dollars and they would actually be worth over a billion dollars today if they'd held on to, held on to those shares so it, amazing so you really can call it a billion dollar equation right OK, so I frightened you with all of these mathematicians um, uh, having control of your life. What I want you to what I want to do finally is think about how you can take back control. These are two other students of mine. This is Lena Michaela. And they did a project where they looked at Instagram. What they did is a um, what they did is every day they they'd only open their Instagram once a day. And when they opened it, they noted down the uh, order of the things that appeared on their Instagram. Um, I've forgotten the word in English now. I can only think of it in Swedish. On their Instagram thing, the the pictures that come up in the row in Instagram. And they they noted down the order of the things that came up. And they were interested because celebrities in Sweden were claiming um, they weren't being prioritised by Instagram anymore. The Kim Kardashian types weren't being lifted up as much as they were before. And Alina and Michaela wanted to, to check this claim and they found that actually it was, wasn't quite true. What was true was that their friends and relatives were prioritized on Instagram. Um, companies that weren't paying money to Instagram, they were deprioritized on the on the what, I can't remember the It's called flow in English, but it's in Swedish, but it's not. I've been living in Sweden too long. But influencers were unaffected by by this. So influencers were still as influential as before. They weren't. um, But friends and relatives were prioritized. And so this is a sort of simple experiment that you can do. And and, and Lena Michaela wrote up a student um, project on this. And I really like this quote from Lena because she said that after she'd done this experiment of just looking at Instagram once once a day, she knew that instead of scrolling down, trying to find something interesting, she'd stop after she'd seen the post from friends and she'd just know that there was just boring stuff later, da- longer down. So that type of experiment, very simple to do, can allow you to take back control of your life. So there is no um, Illuminati and Da Vinci Code is a work of fiction. But what this journey has taught me is really to see the different sides of the equations that I use is the side which is very much characterized by people like Jana Marius or Lena Michaela. Lena Michaela are now school teachers and they're going off to start their career and I like to think that they they will be telling their students about how how the influencer equation works and so on and I, I think there's that side of, of it with young people learning this type of mathematics and going off to do worthwhile and interesting jobs, maybe betting isn't worthwhile, worthwhile and money-making jobs. There's also this kind of self-help bit of it. And much of what I talk about in the book is the this, this self-help idea that you can improve your life if you, if you use mathematics. Then there's this massive idea of us, our lives being controlled by these simple algorithms. And I like this idea that you can turn back these equations on the companies who are using them on you you can reverse engineer them and beat them at their own game. So that's what I'm trying to do here. But then there's this kind of scary idea. And I think, you know, this is a very much an economics idea. We hear about inequality all the time. And we hear about how, in in particular, during the COVID crisis, that the rich have got even richer than before. And there are these guys, and um, I also feel very guilty when I look at this picture of like these guys who are sort of smiling as much as I am, telling you all of this. Guys are making all of this money, and um, while the rest of us are paying into their vast, vast finances this is Larry Page it was interesting I showed this the other day and nobody knew who Larry Page was which that that blew my mind you know that I think we all know who the other four are but Larry Page is probably the most influential of them all nobody knows who he is but I know Jan wants me to stop because I promised to do 40 minutes um I just want to say one last thing and the side of this too I work with lots of people who are using mathematics to make um a better world this is alan hill who has worked on company networks trying to find out um, how people are setting up fake uh, companies in the cayman islands transporting money around this is nicole nisbet who works for the houses of parliament what she does is she helps condense all of the social media debate that's going on online and, and help present it in a better way to members of parliament Victoria spicer has been looking at um the the conflict in um between Ukraine and Russia and how that debate was led on Twitter Um, and this is Mira Bernstein who's been looking at gerrymandering from a mathematical perspective perspective and there's all of these people who are doing mathematics to in order to try and understand and make the world a better place so those are the sides of ten is there a secret society that controls the world well yes join today and make a difference okay thank you very much
0: okay Thank you very much, David, for a (coughs) very nice presentation. So we've opened the floor for questions. Uh, If you have a question, please type it into uh, the Q&A box and try to keep it short, uh, (laughs) because we we have to kind of think. And and also, if you uh, include your name and your connection to the LSE. Uh, So we have a couple of uh, questions already. So one is from somebody called Olympia Campbell. once bookies understand the way you are taking advantage of the slight over underestimation, do they correct for it?
1: Yes, they do. Absolutely. Um, they correct. That's a lot of the way that they make money. So um, how do you still so then you have to find that this is because. I do give this impression that Jan and marius they made a lot of money. They did make a lot of money, but it's a very advanced business that they had to send up to do it. They have to employ people. They have to have investment capital. So it's like any other business. And so it's not really, and it's sort of like a constant battle against the bookmakers because they also want to take uh, as much edge as possible. But there's always things that they leave over that you're trying to find. So you're trying to find those small edges You're trying to find what you could put into your model to find those small edges. And also, uh, Marius and I discussed this a lot to do with the World Cup. One of the things that happened during, during the World Cup is a lot of people who don't normally bet start to place bets on the matches. Now, the bookmakers, they want to be able to offer odds on those matches and they want to have their books balanced. So they actually have to change their odds to counter, to allow for the irrationality of all the people who are be- suddenly betting on footches. So that's why we could make a bit of money on the, on the world cup. It's, it certainly requires, uh, it requires working with this every day. The best thing of course, is to set up your own bookmakers. And that's what uh, Matthew Benham, for example, uh, did. He, he works, he now owns Brentford football club and um he, started, he's an Oxford graduate who started his own business and ended up owning his own bookmakers. I imagine that Jan and Marius will one day own their own bookmakers too.
0: Okay, so here is is a slightly different kind, less technical question. Catherine Sung, who is a first year undergrad at Sciences Sciences Po in Paris, but now is in Newcastle, UK. And so I guess she is asking, what are some of the ethical problems that arise from businesses using equations in this way?
1: yeah that's a really good question that they arise on on lots and lots of different levels Um, we can see it for example in the youtube um, thing there because basically what what uh, for better or worse what youtube did is they replaced all programming with one simple algorithm which just gives you more of what you watch and it's not even things first of all they actually tried to do it on likes how much how much you liked various things and it's not even that. It's just if you watch this, you will get more and more of it. And that's of course, means that you kind of end up going into these areas where you, your opinions get more and more extreme. So that's one issue. There are so many other ethical issues. Uh, there's also the, the what I mentioned there at the end to do with the imbalance in wealth. You end up with the small people who control these algorithms and, and use them. And they become rich not because they were geniuses, really, but just because they had the sense to work out how you can use this algorithm to make money in this particular situation. And the people who don't have that educational background, they just don't have that possibility. And so that's another ethical issue. There's there's bias in algorithms as well. So um, also there's yeah there's oh there's so many of these. I'm not sure which one to go into. Yeah, I'll say something about the bias in the algorithms again. They don't understand subtle social codes that we have. So a lot of these algorithms, based on these simple, simple principles, end up being racist and sexist, giving very bad search results, um, making poor decisions about who should be who should get loans, and there is a lot of those types of problems. I, I think overall, I mean, I've just said all, all the bad things are, I think they have to be balanced against all the good things about how we can actually get much better information. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of problems. And, and I think it's important for anyone who's having a mathematical education today to think about those things.
0: Okay, thank you, uh, David. This, I mean, I'm, I'm looking through the question. There's a slightly, what is this, like a potentially a follow-up question. Adam? Pitio from Copenhagen. Um, mm. I mean, he he notices conspiracy conspiracy theories seem to be more popular t- to most than solving mathematical problems. <laughs> so, should we mathematicians do something about it?
1: Um, I think so. I think that I think that that's really important, and and that's what um, well, that's what a lot of what I've been trying to do here is if you can understand simple mathematical ideas. And I say simple because mathematicians overuse this word simple because uh, maybe they aren't simple for many, many people. But there are some key ideas in mathematics that can be taught and we have to get them across because once you have those ideas, you can really take back um, control of your life. And so I think that we need to spread more of those things. The problem is it's more difficult, of course, to learn mathematics than watch conspiracy theory. But we have to work more to make these entertaining. And you 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 see, you actually see more and more on YouTube, there are videos with six million, seven million views with mathematicians explaining things. So it is happening as well as the conspiracy theories. So um I know I think we have to we have to work for that all of the time. So if you're young and enthusiastic, start a YouTube channel, include it in explaining all of those those mathematical ideas. I think I'm a bit old for that now. I just explained to middle-aged people about how mathematics (laughs) has controlled their lives. But uh, if you're young, please, please uh, start that that type of thing. We did something with the football and mathematics, because a lot of the things I work with is with football. And so I started a YouTube channel just talking about how you can apply mathematics to football. It's called Friends of Tracking, and you can look it up on YouTube. And that was a massive success. And the university started up a course on the basis of that. But I think it can't just be football. It's got to be all different types of applications of of mathematics need to come forward in this way.
0: Okay. Thank you. Again, quick scroll through the questions. Uh, We'll keep that for later. Uh, Yes, Andrew Lowen, visitor to LSE. You've spoken about how mathematics can be used to make money. Uh, What about... It's used by politicians and others to exercise power and actually rule the
1: world. Uh, I mean, are there specific that's, that's a that's a really good question. I think sometimes I think politicians could do with using a bit more mathematics when they make their decisions. To be honest, I'm not sure that they always do. But but I do want to say one because th- one thing that I worked on a lot was the Cambridge Analytica. So that was the idea that you could use an algorithm to target adverts on individual people. And I take that up a little bit in the book around the advertising equation. But what I found with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, this is where they they took data from Facebook and they used it to target particular adverts, is that they weren't particularly effective. They actually didn't know how to use the mathematics properly. And they were trying to solve a problem that couldn't be solved using targeted advertising they said that they were going to target individuals with um, uh target americans who uh, republicans with who they thought were neurotic with certain types of adverts about protecting your family with a gun but it's very difficult to do that type of targeting with the mathematics that um, we actually have so i would say that i would say that the politicians aren't quite using mathematics to control us just now I'm sure some of them would like to, but they're not doing it to the same degree as businesses are doing are doing it. Uh, in particular, social media giants are doing it. And the governments are just trying to catch up and they're trying to regulate and stop them do various things. When, in my opinion, and I suppose I'm, I'm giving away my, it, it does come into a political point of view, but in my opinion, the whole economic system is a problem there where people can become so excessively rich from using these t- So the politicians are really behind on the curve on this, I think.
0: Okay. Not sure if that's an optimistic or a pessimistic (laughs) viewpoint. Okay. Um, Kago Poo is watching from Cape Town, South Africa. And he he asks, or she, I don't, yeah. They ask uh, uh, more personal questions. Uh, Are there fun, interesting ways in which you use mathematics to make decisions in your daily life? even something small.
1: Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do that um, a fair bit. I mean, the, the the thing I mentioned about the probabilistic thinking, that I never think in absolutes. Um, I always think, and my wife gets very, very frustrated with me because when anything goes wrong, I just say, well, you know, there was always like a 12% chance that that would go wrong or, a, or there was maybe even a 90% chance. And she's very annoyed because she thinks I should take responsibility more for the, the decision. Actually, made. But that's actually how I think that I think about the probabilities of things succeeding. And when they don't succeed, I just go, well, yeah, there was always a probability of that. Maybe I need to update my probability a bit to next time. But I I think about that in that way. And um, maybe I'm just going to, if you want to know about more of those types of ways, I gave a talk at Oxford last week, which is available on YouTube, where I talked about two things in particular. I talked about the judgment equation, Bayes' rule of how i can make good judgments about in fact i take an example of um is one of my friends an idiot when they let me down so can i uh, can i work out if i should cut ties with this person and not not uh, and then i find very nicely this is a more positive message is most people should be forgiven most of the time because everybody makes mistakes and even nice people make mistakes so those types of um things i i really do use in my every everyday life
0: Okay, thank you. There's uh, several people seem to kind of re- remember that in the beginning you said, "Oh, well, you showed a slide with nine equations, and you Aha, said, oh, to talk about the tenth one." So Arunav Das and and he got quite several upvotes is uh, ask, "What is the tenth
1: one?" That's a brilliant. Uh, that's a brilliant question. So the tenth, the tenth one um, in the book becomes more philosophical, actually. So at what you can and can't say in maths because as you'll as you'll have seen with the way i've presented it a lot of moral questions come up when we start using that mathematics and one solution that is very popular amongst mathematicians is to take what's called a utilitarian point of view and that's to say well what's the best for the most people and actually i show that i show using something called the trolley problem that that's not ever going to work and Problem is that Yarn um, is is standing there and he's controlling. A tr- there's a train coming along a track, and it's going to hit five people. And Jan has a lever he can pull, which will divert the train, and it will just kill one person. And then I ask Jan "What are you going to do? You don't want to be put on the spot." Most people, most people will actually. Most people say they will pull the lever and the train will be diverted and kill one person instead. But then you ask the question in a different setting. You say, what if you actually had to push someone onto the railway track in order to stop the train going into five people? And then they often come up with a different answer, but they would never push anyone because that's murder. But mathematically, that's the same question. And I think that's something that we forget in mathematics, is we think that we just find the answer, and then we get the the correct thing. But actually, it's not just about finding the answer we actually have to take into account all the moral values and judgments that we've built up over a long a longer period of time
0: okay thank you yes that's a, a well-known and difficult problem <laughs> uh maybe i mean we have a few more minutes and and being chair is well, we, always oh, for me you, we
1: can go on as long as you want
0: i know well we we, we we like to kind of finish in about an hour. being a chair gets also gives me an advantage, and that I can ask one question so i mean I, I remember the yeah. time when there was no internet uh, would there be i mean most of your equations seem to be related to social media, which is actually very, very new, not, not even i mean starting on the internet. Mm. Uh, what would be a a one of the tiny questions if you had written the book forty years ago, which now no longer is relevant?
1: Whoa, that's a funny question. Um, <laughs> it's really putting me on the spot. As well. So equation from... Oh. I... Hmm. Well, which equation? I don't know. No, I feel no, I like... I'm going to pick on an equation now, and it's uh, going to be someone's favourite equation. you e- think? E- which equation? I think... So I'll tell you what I'm... I, I, this is going to be really controversial, because I know you have lots of speakers to do this. I think a lot of game theory... Should just be uh, forgotten. About. <laughs> I think that there's a there's a, there's a lot there was became too much emphasis on game theory without enough applications. Um, this is a very controversial point of view to bring up to, to London School of Economics, and oh, the, no. <laughs> But I think that some of game theory was overrated in its importance and grew. Beyond what it was actually needed for. So maybe I said at first that game theory should be abandoned I think that it became too important in answering various problems because it Partly because that people weren't as rational as was first first believed But partly because there was lots of problems that needed to be solved not in a game Theoretic type of way where you found out the maximal strategy or something like that but you actually needed a much softer approach so, if I was to talk about one thing that was around a lot, you know, if you think about von Neumann was thinking about those, and everyone was thinking about game theory as, as the future, I think that that, for me, is starting to become a less a less useful area of mathematics. Pretty controversial, there, So
0: Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure, there will be some foaming going around. <laughs> Fond of screens, there. Well, it let me one final which which popped up fairly recently is girish krishna who asked uh, an algorithm or an equation to beat climate change and he's an oil and gas professional in london
1: oh you. i'd love that well I, I yeah i have to admit that i don't address climate change in um in the book that's one example of where you can think about members of 10 really changing our understanding in a very good way of the world so no there's no equation which is going to change climate change but um there are many equations that have allowed us to understand uh, like the well chaos theory and in particular but understand and predict climate change so i think um that's where the most important um uh, important contributions have been the answers to climate change really do involve changing our actions. So they're not going to be just solved by coming up with with one equation, I'm afraid.
0: Okay. I think of that slightly more positive note, that I always hope <laughs> to uh, to at least answer some of the questions about climate change. I would like to to finish here. I'd like to thank in particular David for uh, an amazing talk and for some insightful answers. I'd like to thank the audience for participating, for some excellent questions. I hope you enjoyed it all. Uh, in the chat, you can see some links to the LSE events page, to where you can sign up for the newsletter, to David's own website, to the Department of Mathematics, and at some point there will also be links at several of these places to the podcast uh, and other videos of other events. I hope you wherever you are in the world, in whatever situation you currently are. Enjoyed it and hope to see you back sometime soon in one of the Department of Mathematics or the general LSE events. Thank you very much.